You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile's heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 25, December 1st, 2016. So today on our show, we have Dean Leffingwell. Dean is the author of Agile Software Requirements, Lean Requirements Practice for Teams, Programs, and the Enterprise, also Scaling Software Agility and Managing Software Requirements. Dean is the creator of the Scaled Agile Framework and currently serves as both Chief Methodologist and CEO at Scaled Agile Inc., which he co-founded in 2011. Dean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for inviting me, guys. So you've had a very long, distinguished career in the last 40-plus years of IT industry experience. How would you summarize these experiences in terms of pros and cons and highlights and so on? Well, I've been, um, so my, my education is in systems engineering. I have degrees in aeronautical engineering and uh, biomedical engineering. So I gravitated to software because that was the harder part. And 40 years ago, it was quite innovative to be able to put software inside a, um, a medical device of any kind, you know, the invent of the first mini computer and then the microprocessor. So I started out as a coder because nobody could figure out how to code that weird machine in the corner and have been applying um, you know, computerization to initially medical equipment, industrial controls, machine controls, robotics, um, all forms of automation initially. Um, one of the projects we did in my early career was uh, we developed the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom ride at, for the at Disney World. So that was a uh, four microprocessor, fourth based on uh, onboard system with a four wheel independent hydraulic drive. And it's just a kick. So my career and the fun in my career has always been building systems. And kind of the bigger, the better, the harder they are, the more challenging it is, the more challenging it is, the more fun it is. Uh, and then we put our shoulder against the wheel to say, can we get better outcomes? Yes, it's R&D. Is there any way to be any more predictable? Can we, you know, can we uh, delight our stakeholders a little bit better? Can we get our business owners to feel like we're reliable people, even though we're doing R&D? So my 40-year my career is a continuum of thinking as about the methods and practices of software development, everything from you know, high assurance to kind of quintessentially down and dirty agile, uh, write a user story, you know, d- deploy to the web and, and uh, you know, see what happens in terms of the way your customers uh, perceive your solution. So it's, it's a continuum for me. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Lean and Agile is uh, just these fantastic knowledge bases that, that I think together create a, a different paradigm and one that we've had really good success with in embodying those uh, principles and practices in a framework that, that people can access. So I, I don't really see, you know, I, I see step changes in terms of the methods, but not in terms of my career. I'm doing the same thing I think I was doing 30 years ago. Maybe maybe older, maybe slower, maybe wiser. Uh, I have to let the market judge that. <laughs> yeah, and scaling has become kind of a critical topic, which is in the forefront of everyone's minds these days. 
So what are some of the most significant challenges you see with the larger organizations and your work at Scaled Agile Inc.? So, you know, frankly, the bigger they are, the harder they are. And the reason is, is that if you're working in, um, you know, my initial serious scaling attempts were probably 10 years or so ago at companies like BMC Corporation, Nokia Siemens Networks, uh, and places like that, where we had groups of people, maybe one, two, three, four hundred people working on a system or a subsystem, uh, maybe a complete product. And um, they're really focused on the end result. It was about delivering value. And they were either independent software vendors or people that were building systems that shipped. So you really had to have, had to have really good outcomes. So that, that process was in some ways easier than larger enterprise because management and, and uh, you know, management staff could see the goal and could recognize things that interfered with the goal. The larger the enterprise is, the more layers of management there are, the more systems are in place, and the further removed are the, the leaders of the enterprise from the actual kind of tactical activity of developing code and systems. So they tend to see things in terms of their functional orientation, their, you know, their, 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 their metrics, their cost accounting, their, their, you know, their project, typically project-driven cost accounting, et cetera, and don't feel the problem the same. And the more layers there are, the more difficult it is to really create the Agile enterprise. And I think our, our goal in terms of Lean Agile and Safe is to help enterprises achieve better success. In so doing, they get better customer outcomes. We have people, um, one company, for example, that's uh, uh, in essentially regional chemotherapy delivery. And they've developed much better systems. They've not published the case study, but they talked about it at, at the conference last year. And they talk, you know, in, in hushed and serious tones about the way they've managed to improve uh, therapy delivery for re people in remote areas accessing chemotherapy. So it's a very serious business for the outcomes. But also as a developer, I've always had an empathy with building great systems and then going home and feeling bad. You know, pretty much every delivery, every release was some way compromised. You knew you could have done better. Um, you know, either your pager or your phone or email lights up about the issues that are remaining. So I have an empathy for two things. One, how to create better, better outcomes. Uh, in terms of the systems and solutions we deliver to the end user. And then if we can just simply improve the daily life of, you know, of a developer, a tester, a knowledge worker, um, it's just all good. And the nice thing about that level of goodness is that you know, higher employee engagement, more fun at work, better outcomes for the end user, there's no downside. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like it's a trade-off where we apply Agile and you know, you know, beat, beat our Agilist about the head and shoulders for delivery. It's kind of the opposite. They get to feel empowered, do better work, deliver better results, the enterprise feels better, and, and the users get a better outcome. So that's, that's the bigger mission. And one of the reasons that I'm pretty calm about you know, people's views of methods, et cetera, is that I feel that many of us are on that same mission. So even though we have different opinions about how to achieve that mission or what method we might apply, I, I, just, I just appreciate the fact that the people that I work with, the people that are in the industry, the people that, that right now that are interviewing me, we're, we're on the same mission. So I don't get uh, overly emotional about, you know, the nuances or, or, you know, my model versus your model or this course versus that course or that consultant versus the other one. I, I just want to get better outcomes. Uh, and and that, that comes from perspective and taking the broader view and recognizing that, you know, this is continuous evolution. And um, I know you talk about Agile Next, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. I'm not sure what happens next, but I do know that we have to go through where we are now to see that. There's no, there's no, you know, just kind of a vectored leap into hyperspace into the next model that I can see. I think we're going to evolve leaner, 
uh, faster, more efficient teams. We're going to continue to increase employee engagement, hopefully continue to increase the joy of work, uh, developing systems. And I think that will just provide, you know, significant continuous improvement. And Dean, what you're saying really does resonate well with with Daniel and myself because so many people are arguing about this methodology, that methodology, and they're they're talking a lot about the agile brands. And one of the things that we always say is delivering the value to the customer is the ultimate thing that matters. And even even my Twitter handle works on my PC, right? Because I, I, you know, I used to manage software developers and say, well, it works on my machine. I'm like, well, let's ship your machine to the customer, you know, I'm like because it doesn't matter if it works on your machine. So I definitely appreciate the fact that we're all trying to get to that same place. And one of the questions I would have about that is, you know, maybe some of these brands or methodologies that people are arguing over have a, you know, have more applicability in certain areas than others. I mean, you, you mentioned these more life critical and mission critical things. You mentioned larger organizations. For the methodologies that you've been using and for SAFE in particular, is there a sweet spot that you think that it works really, really well? And then, you know, maybe some of the people haven't thought about it because it's in an environment or a situation that they haven't really thought about? Well, we designed, we designed SAFE for people building larger systems. Make no mistake about it. We were engaged at places where there was a couple hundred people, uh, in some cases, really, you know, kind of um, burning platform levels. So we designed SAFE to support significant numbers of agile teams collaborating and cooperating. And when you think about that, that becomes an issue of alignment and vision and mission. It becomes an issue, an issue of some kind of consistent architectural underpinnings. People that understand the domain at the right level of abstraction that can say, hey, I think single sign-on would work well uh, with this particular security protocol. So if we all did this protocol, wouldn't that be better than if we picked five different single sign-on protocols, which even if they were compatible, is going to create security leaks, et cetera. So SAFE is designed for people that, that are building larger systems, make no mistake about it. Um, at the same time, if we look at the, you know, the basic method, SAFE is based on agile teams, period, end of story. There is no SAFE without agile teams. There's no way to achieve the results or the benefits that people are getting in time to market without really creating high-performing teams. And when we look at those three methods, the, uh, I would say the ones that you know, kind of get the most kind of labeled buzzwords, um, you know, Scrum, XP, maybe a little less bloom on that rose, but we're trying to revitalize that because of the, you know, our, our inherent interest in quality and Kanban. They're optimized for different things. You know, Scrum created this really unique invention of a software team, a cross-functional team with a couple of critical roles. And if you look at, you know, the history of development, including things like the Rational Unified Process, et cetera, there was never really a clear definition of a team. So Scrum said, you know, we need to be cross-functional. We need to be co-located wherever possible. We need somebody that can speak to with content authority because that way the team can go fast. We need a facilitative leader that can help eliminate impediments and help keep our process working. So it's really optimized for creating teams that work together to deliver value in short increments. Well, I think that was pretty cool. I, I took Schwaber's Scrum class about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I actually came to Agile via XP, and I worked with some people that were keen, and I would say they were zealous to a fault about extreme programming. So I, I tried to understand why they were so zealous. So I sat down and did some kind of fake pairing with one, uh, with one XP developer and watched him create his code, the care he took. I watched him create a unit test, and I was curious about that because it's like, well, you've already written the code. What's this? And he said, well, I need to put a test in the system to test the code. And I, I asked him, I said, well, we, you know, don't you think your code works? And he goes, no, I don't, because it hasn't been tested yet. Um, so he, and, and he looked at me kind of oddly, and he said, Dean, don't you understand? I took responsibility for this story. 
And that was really impactful for me because to think about the way of which, uh, you know, an extreme programmer uh, takes an extremely critical view of making sure there is a test. I mean, that's, that's what Kent Beck said is extreme about it. We don't spend enough time testing. Let's write the test first, and that'll solve that problem. So I thought that was a really interesting, and um, it triggered me uh, to the fact that Agile, while apparently lightweight, can actually be incredibly disciplined in terms of delivering high-quality code. You know, delivering software in a short time box is good. Um, so I didn't see, and I remember those days, this, you know, this kind of Scrum, Scrum VXP, and I just didn't see that as a battle. I saw that those methods were optimized for different things. Lightweight project management, a software-driven, local-empowered teams, a, a good team definition, coupled to you know high-quality code. Well, over the last you know six or eight years, uh, principles of product development flow, lean product development, Ward, Kennedy, Reinertsen, and others, uh, and and David Anderson have brought brought this Kanban method, which is a method for basically managing the flow of work, understanding your throughput, establishing whip limits because overloading any system is simply catastrophic. And you don't get a proportional decrease in throughput. You get a catastrophic decrease in throughput. So Kanban says we need to see the work. We need to know exactly where the work is, what state it's in, what the flow is like, and what are the bottlenecks around our process. So I just look at those three methods now. Let's just say at the team level of SAFE. And I say this is the year 2016. What Agile team doesn't really need to apply all of these understandings? Uh, a good, effective uh, Scrum-like process. We use one even on my small team. Uh, understanding flow, and then a good discipline for creating great code. So while I recognize that there are commercial interests and there are people that certainly care a lot about one method and we, you know, we all write books and let's not pretend like we don't make any money when we write a book or consult, there's commercial aspects. I didn't, I didn't see it as a method issue. I saw it as more of a commercial perspective on the methods. And I looked at that as all good. And then I have a, the, maybe the good luck of growing up in some environments that included lean manufacturing. Actually acquired a manufacturing concern for prototyping um, almost 30 years ago. I went to Goldrath School, the theory of constraints. I, it's, a, it's an exaggeration to say that I studied under Goldrath, but I did go to a student class. And that was kind of cool. So, um, and then I was a, a chairman of a board of a company that made a lean MRP software for manufacturing. So I had this whole lean perspective, and lean absolutely scales, right? You can, I mean, if you can make Toyota lean, you can sure make a big IT shop lean. So those bodies of knowledge have all been part of me, and uh, safe as a synthesis. And because those bodies are so deep, right? If you stack up, you know, the XP books or goodness, the Scrum books would probably fill my room. The lean books would do as well. Um, and you ask yourself the question, how do we make that knowledge accessible? And I remember being in Australia uh, last year for um, Agile Australia, and um, one, of the, one of the major players down there, the Australia uh, tax office, uh, talked a little bit about SAFE, and they said, we can't realistically expect our employees to digest these bodies of knowledge and, 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 and synthesize that into a set of basic first principles and practices that they can execute. That's a bridge too far. So we look at SAFE and we find that information and we find it referential, we find it distilled and we find it very usable. So we've used that as kind of our reference point. Those, those are awesome bodies of knowledge. Uh, they've put together a framework that integrates that. They've made it freely revealed, publicly available. There's no hidden knowledge. Believe me, we don't know anything that we haven't put in SAFE. <laughs> as soon as we learn it, we publish it. And they were appreciative of the fact that that distillation is what creates the knowledge they needed to, you know, to make good forward progress um, in, in their world. Uh, sorry, that wasn't Australia Tax, that's Australia Post. So that's what SAFE is. It's, it's an integration of distillation. 
of you know a decade or two, more decades of experience, but decades or two of these bodies of knowledge. Uh, systems thinking enters into that. Whenever you're trying to build a big system or change the enterprise, you have to understand the optimizing component does not optimize the system. So it's it's quite a body of work. And when we're building systems that we've never built before, uh, at a scale and scope that we've never built them before, I don't want to tie anyone's hand behind their back and say, well, we shouldn't talk about Kanban here. Or we shouldn't talk about extreme programming or Scrum. We shouldn't talk about safe. We shouldn't talk about less. We should talk about all the things we've learned that help us build bigger systems more efficiently. Yeah, I can I can remember back to um, 2010, 2011 when I was working with Navtech. Um, that's that's when you and I first met. And, Absolutely. Uh, involved with the Nokia release trains and stuff like that. And there was a lot of very um, important and and meaningful practices that we uh, in, you know employed there at, at Navtech. So it was, it was really great stuff. It got everybody on the same page and, you know, coordinating releases and so forth. And, you know, they had great outcomes. That's here.com now. And uh, while Nokia as an enterprise certainly fell on hard times, uh, that Navtech division became here.com and was sold recently to a consortium of German automobile manufacturers who, who didn't want Google to be their, uh, <laughs> didn't want Google to be their mapping device in the car. So not only did, did we and you and, and the other coaches help Navtech succeed, um, we helped them create a great and successful enterprise that, that became you know, financially rewarding for the stakeholders in the company and one of the, the real shining stars in, in the Nokia product family. And Dean, uh, something you just said a second ago about lean manufacturing, and I wonder what your thoughts are today around the small batch manufacturing. Um, you know, you and I both witnessed the, as you said, you can make Toyota lean, and, we, and we've made big, big organizations lean that are producing cars and very complicated things. And then we've almost went too far because the factories are now geared up to doing these huge, huge production runs with the injection molding and everything else. Then you have a guy on Kickstarter that wants to produce 5,000 units. And the factories in the whole manufacturing system are telling him or her that they can't do it. Oh, yeah, we can't run 5,000 units. So what are your thoughts on that and how Agile can, can kind of come full circle, right? Because Agile kind of started on that factory floor, right? And we went to software development and now we're starting to influence the, the factory itself. Well, that's kind of an interesting, let's call that a 360 <laughs> over 30 or 40 or 50 years because, because right, to Toyota is really largely credited with the birth of lean, right? Um, uh, Teichi Ono uh, and uh, Shingo and others work there to take Toyota uh, in the 50s from imagine Japan's economy after World War II to build, you know, essentially the world's largest car company. And they use lean thinking to do that. And the initial kind of I'm called the birth of lean, but one of the quintessential issues was batch size. So Toyota couldn't compete on batch size. GM could make, you know, 100,000 blue Impalas, and Toyota could maybe sell 6,000 cars. So when they tried to compete on cost, they couldn't. And the reason is, is that they, they didn't have a market that, that, that consumed those large batches. So in, to, to address that problem, they started working on the transaction cost. So what that meant at that point is, well, we need to be able to make, you know, 200 vendors efficiently. And if it takes us seven days to change the dyes, um, we're not going to be able to do that. So they started working on, you know, kind of the, the idea of the single minute die transfer. And of course, it doesn't go from seven days to a single minute. But they started worrying, worrying about the transaction cost so that they could make small batches more efficiently. So if our enterprises have grown to the point where, you know, they're mass producing and they can only make large batches efficiently, you know, they have, may have lost some of that touch or they may have found markets that, that, that consume that. But make, make no doubt about it, the, those enterprises can continue to be lean. Companies like uh, uh, you know Nokia Siemens Networks Manufacturing, they're not done with their lean journey. 
they're still trying to reduce the batch size, get to, you know, this theoretical idealistic construct of single piece flow, which isn't practical. It's fun to think about. I'm going to build exactly one router of this type, one car of this type. So if we've gotten ossified with too, you know, too, too big a mass production, then we probably lost some of the some of the jewels in the crown there in terms of thinking about smaller batches efficiently, because that's what that's what that's what uh, lean brings. And if you look at, for example, the um, you know the the DevOps movement, there's there's no case where we're trying to say let's make our big batch go through that system you know more efficiently. Well, maybe there's a case. The goal is is that the transaction cost to get our, my the new software deployed is high. And so long as it's high, you have to have a really big batch to be able to make it efficient to get those changes through. Well, if you can drive that transaction cost down through, you know, automation, automated deployment, build the servers automatically, uh, you know, configure the software, have reversion capabilities for the database translations. As you get the transaction cost down, you get the batch size down. And small batches go through the system faster and more reliably and deliver value more quickly. So that's, that's I think, the, the quintessential kind of fundamental construct uh, behind lean production. And it applies equally well to software as it does to hardware. We ask all of our guests basically the same question. It's the premise for our show, which is, where do you think Agile is headed next? Um, I don't know. You know, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a risky business predicting the future, more likely to be wrong than not. What I know is I see kind of a, a continuous evolution through kind of a three, you know, three major 10 to 15 year waves. There was a time when quality meant do it right once. And that, I think, was part of the whole initiative uh, that drove us to, you know, to the traditional, you know, get the requirements right, build the solution right once. It's more efficient if you only test it once. And that was the, the you know, the waterfall method that started in the 70s, even though, you know, the, even though Winston Royce, who wrote the quintessential article, said don't use it. Um, it, it, it appealed to our, our need to to, uh, to understand what we're building and build it right once, and it just seemed like theoretically efficient, kind of, you know, quality is free, total quality management, that whole move. And then we went through, um, for, for many of us, through kind of the iterative incremental revolution and rational unified process, which now seems kind of old school, was the first thing that codified the fact that you had to, ha you had to take more than one whack at this. You, you, can't, you, you can't just build a big system and say, I can do this right once. So it, it had its phases, which I think largely people translated back into waterfall. So the gravity of waterfall kind of drag, drug you back where inception elaboration meant different things than it was supposed to. But it basically said, we're going to have to take this in chunks. And those iterations were big by today's perspective. You know, I remember, you know, like a construction iteration of six weeks. Well, at the time it didn't seem big. It was like, wow, at the end of six weeks, we're going to have something really new. And we're going to be able to test and deploy that. Uh, and then we, we go to, you know, something all the way to XP where, where um, the first time I got involved in Agile was I was doing uh, basically a spin out of a company uh, and we were doing development in Ukraine and we ran one week sprints, really, really small batches and faster feedback. So let's dovetail that then, that continuous evolution to what we've learned, especially with Steve's interest in kind of the startup world, you know, from Eric Rees and that whole industry of the lean startup. And the fundamental lesson there is you can't really predict what the customers really need. They don't really know. Um, when they say they need something, they, they don't say, I want, you know, I really want an office in a pocket. They say, I want a phone with email. So um, the lean startup movement basically says, what's the fastest way you can get feedback? And pivot is just a really positive word for being wrong. But it made being wrong okay. Because being wrong said, hey, we got it out early, we tested, et cetera. So I don't see any, I don't see any way out of a path that says quicker time to market, faster feedback, smaller batches, 
you know, uh, more rapid MVPs. That, that is the solution to innovation. So I, I don't know what happens, you know, post agile, but I know we have to go through here to find it. There's just not going to be any jump, you know, into hyperspace that, that I can imagine that says there's an entirely different way. Uh, if we think about the smallest possible batch size, the fastest possible feedback, and the ability to change to what our customers now tell us the real solution is. That's for me. That's that's the goal, and I just see this as a continuum. Do I see single piece flow where I you know write one line of code and deploy it and get feedback? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I certainly see the ability or the need to for more positive experimentation. I, I deal with larger enterprises a lot, and we talk about project cost, you know, project based cost accounting. And I ask a question. I said, "Is it okay for a project to fail here?" And you can imagine the answer. Typically not, right? And then you ask another question. Well. Tell me a little bit about innovation. How, how does that work if every experiment has, has to work? So smaller batch sizes, faster feedback, leaner processes and practice, higher degrees of automation, test and, and test deployment. That's the continuum we're on now. Where that ends up, I have no idea. It's interesting you say that, and because just with our previous conversation, we talk about Agile 360, right? You know, kind of coming full circle. And one of the arguments that I've been making, I've been doing a few keynotes over the years at a particular Scrum events and things like that, is saying that, you know, Agile started on the factory floor. We, you know, Schwaber and company, you know, modified it for us as the software development crowd, right? You know, and then as you, you and I were riffing a few minutes ago, we we're talking about, you know, Kickstarter and lean manufacturing. So now we've kind of pushed it back. I also feel that we've influenced the startups. You know, you, you mentioned Eric Reese. He was like a certified scrum master, right? He's an agile dude. And he went to Steve Blank and said, hey, you know, what is this you're doing? I just think this is agile for business people. And Steve Blank was like, huh? And then they started talking. So I, I feel that us in the software development industry have influenced the startup world, so to speak. And obviously, as you said, that's, you know, starting to influence the enterprise. So I was wondering in your kind of worldview of the agile next, because I agree with everything you said, do you think we're going to evolve together? That meaning as we evolve agile, it's going to incorporate more of the enterprise or less of the enterprise or the way that the lean startup has, you know, evolved along with agile as well. Well, I think let's, let's look at the demographics for a second. Most software developers work for big companies. That's just a fact, right? I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a very high number, probably 60 or 70%. So while we love our startup environments, I've started five companies myself. The reality is most of us in our industry work for American Express or Capital One or, or, or Raytheon or General Dynamics or somebody like that. Those enterprises, in order to compete, <clears throat> especially in the face of digital transformation, everything from you know, the, 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 intelligent, the intelligent machines to you know, banking and insurance, which are frankly just digital transactions now, Right? What is your bank? It's your phone. So those large enterprises, I think, uh, are really facing a massive disruption uh, where it used to be that I'm a bank. I deployed some IT to keep my, you know, to keep my email up and running. And oh, by the way, we can do trading now and we have a transaction server, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness, it's all software. So I think that the larger enterprise has every bit as big a thirst or a need um, as a smaller enterprise does. And I think that's where most of us are employed. So I see, I see the enterprise move. I think just in the last few years, the larger enterprises, you know, they're really not arguing now about whether or not they need to be lean and agile. They might be arguing about how or when or what that means to their organization, but they're not sitting there on, you know, on their fanny going, oh, we're good to go. We, we love our waterfall model and our project-based cost accounting, and we're going to build the next generation bank. They're looking at, you know, 
Uh, and by the way, I can't. I, can't I, I, I was told this. I don't know if it's true or not. That Facebook took out a uh, a banking license in Britain. You know, with a you know a few hundred million users, you can imagine uh, people on Facebook just wanting to pay each other with 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 credits. So I think that challenge to the industry is a really big one, and that's kind of where I spend my time. As I, I am a lean startup, I mean that's what I do. But but I happen to serve those larger enterprises, and I think their thirst. For lean and agile is 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 it's becoming a huge appetite, and uh, then they see their seven or nine layers of hierarchy, and they try to lean that out, and boy, um, that's kind of when you know the rock hits the hard spot. <laughs> how how do you, how do you lean out that that hierarchy and that bureaucracy? And that's that's a challenge, and that challenge will only be addressed by basically all of those managers starting to understand a different way of delivering value. And then they'll morph to make it easier to deliver value because they won't have any choice. Yeah, it's super important to engage the the middle tier in, in organizations because I think that's a little bit of a gap that's been left by other you know practices and frameworks. Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, Daniel, you'll remember when we were at uh, at Navtech, right? The first thing we started with was 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 the leadership training. And that was a that was a derivation from some larger scaled uh, experiments of Scrum that hadn't really produced the results. So um, our course, Leading Safe, I wrote that who knows six eight years ago, uh, and that's for managers because they own the systems that that we knowledge workers work in. So a, a software developer has a limited ability to impact that system. Uh, you know, no software developer ever wrote the the software development lifecycle, and no CEO no CEO ever wrote a you know security check in protocol. So consequently, the systems are in the middle, and we even have a, a term for those people, and it's it just seems like mildly pejorative middle management, as in you're you're not really low level management, but you're not high level management. You're stuck in the middle. Well, middle management are, are the keys to the kingdom, and I think Deming recognized that you know 20 or 30 years ago, and that's why he spoke to them. He said, "This is a management challenge. This is not a people problem." The fact that we can't make a high-quality car at General Motors at that time is not a problem with the people that we employ. It's a problem with the systems. And management is only management can change the system. So I think we are somewhat unique in our approach, which is that we start with leadership training. And we have you know, really outstanding success. If, if we're able or our partners are able, we don't do much delivery ourselves. Our partners are able to engage middle management. And I remember starting the trains at Navtech, the first thing was leading safe didn't call it that, but it was basically lean agile leadership for the people around the train. And then they'd say, okay, that's how a train works. That's my role. Uh, that's how I'm going to do continuous elaboration. That's how I'm going to do, you know, frankly, continuous architecture. That's how we're going to start down the path of supporting test automation because we're going to have to test more now. Why? Because we're iterating. So that, that, you know, that's where the keys to the kingdom lie. And the deeper that tier is, the tougher it is because it's harder it is to get to those people. And you get in a situation where the people you want send their people. Well, that's not, you know, that, that, as Deming would say, such a responsibility cannot be delegated. So we start with leadership training. I think we're unique in that. We've certainly trained, our, our partners have trained, I'm not sure what the number is, 40, 50, 60,000 managers to, to a lean agile mindset. And, and when the managers have that mindset, the impediments that we used to just kind of, you know, throw in their lap become, they, they start leading and they go, well, this is going to be a problem. So why wait to create three agile teams to tell me that this, you know, that this lifecycle milestone doesn't really work? I suspect it doesn't work. Why wait for the teams to start, you know, asking for additional support for test automation, different types of testing skills, uh, faster build servers? Let's let's lead that process. So I think uh, much of the success is safe, and 
you know, maybe even most of it, is credited to the fact that, that, that Lean is a leadership-led initiative, and we believe that Lean Agile is the same way. Agile is a team thing, and if you let management just say, oh, that's for the teams, and that doesn't really affect me, then you're not going to really build a Lean, a lean enterprise. Dean, we have one more question that we'd like to ask everyone is what what's next for Dean? You've given us a lot of thoughts and insights of, of both the market from where you came from. And, you know, I love the Indiana Jones ride. I've written it like a thousand <laughs> times. So I want to just yeah, thank I you. Ride. I want to thank you on behalf of our audience. <laughs> that was, that's probably one of the few times that I've been cool in the eyes of my teenagers is I took I took, I took my youngest daughter to uh, to Disney World and we rode, we, we rode the ride and she came out and pulled me on the arm, arm and she said, Dad. That is really cool. We did that in a uh, you know a blacked out warehouse in Boulder, Colorado, completely hush hush, uh, and then launched the market to good fare. Uh, so what's next for me? Uh, again, I, I I don't have a prediction for that. I'm I'm working doing the same thing I've always done. Um, I suspect that I will continue to do that as long as I am able to contribute. Um, this is I'm I'm in my fifth company now all really related to software development uh, and improving software practices, either in terms of either developing equipment, developing medical devices, or helping people with, with frameworks and practices. I'm not out of gas yet. I have yet to not be able to climb up on the stage and give a talk. So I'm going to continue and just let, uh, let things, let the future play out in, 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 ways that, uh, in, in ways that work. I also think from the standpoint of you know, our company, our small company, um, all we ever focus on is how can we help our customers get better results. And each company they've been involved in, um, you know, they, they, they build value. And when you build value, then, you know, the future t- kind of takes care of itself. If you start thinking about the future and you start working backwards, then, wow, am I building value or am I, am I positioning myself for, you know, acquisition or sale? And just, it, just seems, uh, it, it just seems to become introspective and introverted rather than uh, outward bound. And I, I like to think about if, if you can help the customer, and, and they pay you more than it costs you to help them, that's pure value. And if they're smiling at that point and you manage to make a profit at that, that's a pretty cool thing. I mean, that's the basic, basic freedom of our, uh, you know, of, of our free market. So I, I, don't, I don't have any, any, pro- any problems with, with building companies that make revenue and make profits because those profits are the customers saying, we value what you've done in excess of the cost it took you to do that. And that's, that's a pretty cool thing. This has been a great conversation, Dean. We really appreciate the time that you've given to us today. Um, So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you guys for giving me an opportunity to participate. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you. Let me know what's next. Next week on Agile Next, we have Dave West from Scrum.org. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 